much for joining us today on episode number 191 of the Real Life Runners podcast. Today we are going to be talking about gender stereotypes during running and the expectations that are placed on us as men or women runners. We're going to just kind of have a discussion today between Kevin and I about what this means and how this can affect us with our perception and our running. This is the Real Life Runners Podcast, and we're your hosts, Kevin and Angie Brown. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Now let's get running. All right, so we've got a very lighthearted topic for the podcast today, then. Yeah, I know. You're like, hey, we should do an episode on gender stereotyping. I'm like, all right, cool. That sounds like a lot of fun for me to outline. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this one might be a little bit heavier, right? Like, we do a lot of times like to give you guys training tips and these kinds of things, but really, we want to dive a little bit deeper today. So we hope you're on board with that and um, we'll enjoy this conversation. I'm interested to see where it kind of goes between us because I brought this up to Kevin. I don't even know why I started thinking about it, but it's definitely been on my mind for months, probably over a year. You know, like there's a lot of women that have started to come out recently and start to speak out about like how they're treated um, as professional runners and kind of what their experience has been. And just a lot of people talking about women's empowerment and body image and stereotyping and expectations. And so I just had some questions for Kevin, right? Because Kevin was a division one collegiate runner, um, obviously on the male side of things. So I was just kind of curious if he, he experienced similar things or, you know, how the stereotypes kind of affected him or affected men, like if they even did affect men the same way as women. And so we're going to be having that discussion, but we're also going to dive into just how, um, body image plays a role in our lives as real life runners, right? And how we can start to overcome some of those issues that we may have that could be holding us back in a lot of ways, because I think this is a really, really important topic. Like, yes, your training plan matters. Yes, little training tips can help. But until you start to uncover the root of why you feel the way you feel and some of the thoughts that you have about yourself, there a lot of times are unseen obstacles that a lot of us face that we don't even realize are there. Yeah, the unseen obstacles. That's a good way of putting it. I, uh, in the conversation, we'll be playing the role of the big, burly, strong man. Big, strong man. Perfect. Yes. Um, because That's usually what I hear every time you walk in the room, just I, like in my head. Most people, if they try and just come up with adjectives to describe me, burly, I think is really <laughs> high on the list. Husky. For, yeah, husky is definitely <laughs> up there. For any of the, uh, the viewers who do not follow follow me on Instagram. You and, should. And have a visual of, of what I'm actually pulling off here. I, I may fit the running stereotype mold for guys. I would say you do yeah so, I mean but if you don't follow him you can first start by following us at real life runners yes. over on Instagram and Facebook as well um, and then you can actually follow us individually angiebrown.rlr and kevinbrown.rlr over on Instagram where we post a little bit more about our individual training like on our personal profiles all right so where do you want to start this conversation like when I started looking with the, the outline like how are we just going to sort of get into the discussion here. The answer is you just get into it. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's like a segue. Like, let's talk about how we feel about our bodies. Yeah, I I know. I mean, that's really what it is. But it is. So, I mean, that's kind of the opening is how do you feel about your body? And not just between us, but like those of you listening, that's kind of the opening question to this entire thing is Mm -hmm. how do you feel about your body? Which can suddenly draw 
draw up all sorts of emotions. Mm-hmm. Like people start throwing words at it and they're, they're usually very positive or negative words towards how someone actually feels about their body. Right. Because we all have our own body image, right? Like we have our own ideas about our bodies and those ideas make us feel a certain way about our body, right? Like maybe we love our body. Maybe we don't love our body. Maybe there's things that we want to change about our body. And oftentimes those thoughts go back years or even decades for some of us, right? That we started developing this body image when we were children. Right. I mean, when you're little, you can get nicknames. I I had a group of friends when I was, I don't know, third, fourth grade. They referred to me as stick. Really? No one meant it as like a positive or a negative. That was simply just a nickname. Mm -hmm. But that started to form a self-identity, like a, Mm -hmm. a connection to what my body meant. Right. And so... People maybe give you these things or maybe someone said something to you when you were a kid or when you were a teenager and that's just stuck with you throughout all of these years and that is the narrative that is now in your head. Like you just along the way accepted that as fact. Right. That's that's the thing is you've been telling yourself that same thing for years and years and years and it goes back to who knows exactly when. Mm-hmm. If you really sat and tried to think about where that image came from, you might be able to pull up a couple of things that occurred in your childhood. Yeah. But basically this is the narrative that you've told yourself for decades. I'll tell you mine. You know, I was a when I was a kid, um, I was probably I don't know how old exactly, probably 10, uh, 11, somewhere in that range, 10, 11, 12. And I saw my pediatrician and he told me that I was overweight. And this was coming from an obese man. He was definitely obese. And so that crushed me at the time, right? Like I, and it was just something that then became an identity for me for a while. Like I just, I was, I, I always thought that I was overweight and I was very athletic growing up. Um, but I was never thin, you know, I was never slender or slim, however you want to, um, define that. Right. And even those adjectives can be damaging, you know, even using them now, because what does that even mean? Right. I mean, they're, they're all relative. They're all relative to some image. So then you're like, well, I don't know, maybe we go mathematical and we hit a BMI and that's got its own issues going on with it. Well, and that's part of the issue with this whole idea, right? Is that the answer a lot of times is this image in our head and this image in our head is often based on comparison. Yes. Right? Like it's usually a comparison to other people or maybe it's a comparison to your past self. Just like we talk about with running. When when we talk about how we think of ourselves as a runner, do like are you basing that as compared to other people or as compared to past versions of yourself. The same thing goes with body image. Like it's really just self image um, in general, right? It's either your image of yourself as a runner or just your image of yourself as a person. Right. So one of the first things you had was your doctor telling you that you were overweight. Mm -hmm. So now you've got this image of your head of what you should look like. Not even that it's necessarily a very specific thing, but that it was smaller than you currently were. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a really slippery slope to start Mm -hmm. grabbing towards because it's not like, oh, well, if I ever look like this, that means that I've reached that goal image. It's simply that he put in your head lighter than you were would be a better, a better move. Right. And he was like scientific about it and he brought out the chart. Oh, yes, the chart. And I was like, so the chart is telling me that I'm overweight, right? Like it wasn't even an opinion. This was just a fact. Yes. The chart says I'm overweight, therefore I am overweight. And then you, like you start, especially when you're a kid and you're so vulnerable to like outside opinion. Yes. Right? Like you start to take those things on. So I think it's just really important for us to just take a stop like right here and just think about for you, 
what you think about your body. Like, how do you actually feel about your body? And, like, do you like it? Do you hate it? Like, what are your feelings towards your body? And then what are the thoughts that are behind those feelings, right? Because all of our feelings are created by our thoughts. So what is it that you're thinking about your body that's causing you to feel this way? So in my example, right, for a long time, I did not like my body at all. Like I always wanted to change my body. I wanted to change the way that I looked, but it was because of this thought that I was overweight, right? That that, I, that was not good enough. I was not in the normal range on the chart that I, where I was supposed to be, right? So that thought was I was overweight, so it made me not like my body. It, it made me feel like I needed to change my body. Right, which ultimately is this this endless comparison that you've got between, um, you know, I'm assuming that you, you're no longer still looking at a chart to check your height and weight and make sure that you're in an appropriate range. Oh, no, I think bed. BMI is baloney now. <laughs> I mean, like, it, there's, it, it serves a purpose. The baloney mass index. It, <laughs> the baloney mass index. I mean, it serves a purpose, but there's so many reasons that BMI is not the full picture. Okay. So, so that was your, one of your initial memories of this. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was a kid in, I don't know, fourth grade or so that we would hit like the anatomy chapter in a, in the textbook, in the science book. And the teacher would bring me up to the front of the classroom, which there's no way any teacher could pull this off anymore, but the teacher would bring me up to the front of the classroom and have me take my shirt off and suck my stomach in. And when I did this back in like fourth grade, you could literally count all of the ribs and you Mm -hmm. could see all the vertebrae down my spine. Right. And I was like the anatomy model up in the front of the classroom. So you could literally demonstrate like the skeletal image. I don't know if that was the greatest um, impression on my mind at the time. Did it bother you when I used you as an anatomy model during PT school? Well, see, here's the thing. That's is, so funny because I never even thought about that. I know. As as you're telling them, like, what, huh. what's one of my early stories? And that's one of them is huh. I think that this was something that I... I enjoyed performing in the front of class. Like that was a thing that I liked to do when I was young. I liked being up in the front of the class. This was a thing that the teacher brought me up to the front of the class and was like, all right, everybody needs to look at Kevin now. That's so funny because you don't like being the center of attention now. No, no, I don't. And yet I do still stand in the front of the classroom most days. (laughs) That's true. You do as a teacher. (laughs) So, um, all right, everybody look at Kevin. I mean, Mr. Brown. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So... You know, when, when we got together and you were trying to like find different, like you would use me as an anatomy model to try and like find muscles and various mm-hmm. things like that. So it was this weird flashback to a much younger time that's of strange, yeah. that's where my like body identity is. Mm, but is, I was doing it for the muscles, not for the bones. Yes. But, <laughs> but it still is all kind of a similar yeah. image is yeah. I should be helpful as an anatomy model. Hmm. Interesting. That's that's the, the mental image of what I aim for. So does that mean that you think of yourself as like the anatomical example? Like um, this is what you should be? <laughs> no, it means that you should be able to visibly see muscle on me always. Hmm. Like that's that's the image that like when I was super little, you could see a lot of bone on me. I, I can't actually, I have too many abdominal muscles now and I can't suck my stomach in the way that I used to be able to do in like third grade. Mm -hmm. So now I feel like there's other things, but I should still be able to demonstrate where various muscles are. Like Mm. that's the image. So if I see myself in the mirror, I'm like, oh wait, I can't see all these muscles. I should work on that. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So I think that that's just like very, 
interesting how we get these stories. And if you've never thought about this, we can encourage you to actually think about it, right? Like, and start to unpack some of this for yourself. Because if you think of yourself as an overweight person, and that's just some, that's now an identity that you have adopted for whatever reason, and you are trying to lose weight, losing weight does not fit the identity of an overweight person. So when you wonder why you have trouble with dieting and with losing weight sustainably, maybe you're able to lose weight for a little while, but then it already comes back, it always comes back. Think about that identity. Go back to that thought of I am an overweight person, right? So that's Basically, you're telling yourself that there's inherently something wrong with you, but you already identify as that. So if you try to lose weight, then you know it no longer fits your current model of yourself, your current identity. So until you adopt a different identity of a fit and healthy person, you're probably always going to struggle with your weight. Right. You're always going to sabotage yourself because you're telling yourself you're an overweight person. So if you start losing weight and you start looking less overweight, you're going to be like, wait, there's, there's a conflict here. Mm -hmm. And since you've told your, your mind over and over again, I'm an overweight person, your body's going to naturally try and slide back into that. Right. Because the, your thoughts, you know, they create your feelings, and then your feelings drive your actions. So if you're thinking that you're overweight, how are you going to act? You're going to act like an overweight person would act, and you're going to sabotage yourself. You know, you're going to overeat. You're going to not be consistent with your exercise, like those things that an overweight person might do. Whereas if you tell yourself that you're a healthy person, that you are a normal weight, that you are a runner, or like whatever that thought is that you want to start telling yourself, then you can take action from that place. But again, this is going back to, um, you know, we have an episode a while back about the be, do, have model, about how you have to accept the identity and you have to accept these thoughts first in order to act from that place. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what we've got here is just give yourself a few minutes to try and think back about not just like, how do you feel about your body, but perhaps where even those stories started to come from, because you're telling yourself stories. They've been around for years and years. If you can start pinpointing where that might come from, Mm -hmm. then it gives you a chance to be like, well, that's just ridiculous. That's something that someone who is no longer a significant portion to my life said when I was eight. Yeah. And (laughs) even if they were still a significant part of your life, maybe it was a parent, Yeah. right? Like maybe it was a parent maybe it was a sibling you know siblings can be brutal to each other oh yeah right because they're mad at you so they say something super mean and then that sticks with you for how long right Right? they were just trying to be mean they were just trying to be mean and get back at you for something right like who knows if they even believed it right but they knew it was a hot button subject for you so boom i'm gonna push it because i'm mad at you yes of course right and so i think that like even if they are still a part of your life When you continue to tell yourself that story and believe that thing, all of your power is now with that person, right? You don't have any power over your own story, over your own life, because you're giving your power away to that thought that was basically just given to you that you decided to adopt. So it literally can be as simple as choosing to think differently of your body. Like if even if you have a hard time trying to believe it right now, even if you look in the mirror and you say, I'm a normal weight and you look in the mirror and you're like, no, I'm not right. You have to start believing it first, right? What if you are perfect where you are right now? 
but then you still want to improve. And I think we're going to get into that, you know, in later in the episode, yep. right? Because you can still love your body now. You can still think that you're perfect right where you are, but still want to improve. And that's something that we will discuss um, in a little bit here. Right. But the next thing that I want to do is kind of stick with that similar idea of giving your power away is where we kind of start sliding into physical, gender, cultural stereotypes. Right. And this is a weird subject right now because everybody's talking about like gender being non-binary. Yeah. Right. So there's like men and women and then now there's a new category called non-binary. Right. And so it's just the whole concept of, of gender and sex and, um, you know, the difference between men and women is so blurred in a it's lot of ways. getting a lot blurry. Right. And so I think that it's interesting just to kind of like have a little discussion about this. So, you know, when I think about some of the stereotypes that are placed on women per se, um, because I identify as a woman, but like, you know, growing up, it's, it's just, it's interesting if you actually look through history, um, how the the thing changes, right? Like the image changes. Like if you go back to the Renaissance, women were supposed to be bigger and voluptuous and, you know, have essentially more meat on them, right? Yeah, because it was a sign that you were you were doing well monetarily right, because you a, could feed yourself. Yeah, it was a sign of wealth, right? And then if you go to like, you know, even if you just go through like the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and then up, up until today, everyone, like every decade had like a different idea of the perfect body type. You so, definitely just nailed your age there because you stopped at the 90s and leapt to today. Well, whatever, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, is there that big of a difference or isn't it still the 90s? <laughs> I swear. There's, there's everybody who was born in 1900 and then there's a bunch of like six-year-olds. <laughs> oh That's pretty much what we've got. I saw um, a thing at the grocery store the other day that said, if you were born on this date in the year 2000, you are legal, legally allowed to purchase alcohol. Oh, yeah, the sign of the cash yeah, register. Yeah, and you know, if you were born after this date in 2000, you will, are not allowed. And I was like, oh, my God. Which is 2000. crazy because everybody born after the year 2000 is like eight or younger. So I don't know how anybody's purchasing I alcohol. Like, I, I, I think I'm still like 30 years old. But anyway, back to our point at hand, right? If you look at the 90s, women were waifish, right? That was like the image of beauty. Like oh, yeah. super skinny, um, like the supermodels were super duper skinny. Like you could see, they were basically skin and bones, right? right. There was no no muscle, no tone, no anything Yeah, on and supermodel. that's when I was growing up. Like that's yeah. when I was a teenager. It was in the 90s, you know? And so that was the image that I was constantly comparing myself to. <laughs> now I feel, what are you laughing at? Yeah, it, like you're essentially comparing yourself to Kate Right. That's that's what you got. I I couldn't think of her name. I I had Kate. I couldn't think of her last name. But yeah, that's the thing, right? Like women should be small and delicate and waifish. But now it's really, I feel like it's starting to transform into women should be strong, right? That that is kind of more of the current idea of beauty for women. Like muscles are beautiful. Strength is beautiful. Power is beautiful. Like that is starting to kind of, the narrative is starting to move in that direction, I feel. Right. I feel like supermodels still are ridiculous. They're all like eight feet tall and weigh like 25 pounds. Mm -hmm. But the goal of most supermodels is essentially to be like a walking hanger Mm -hmm. rather than to see how clothes actually fit onto a person is they're simply like a hanger. But there's a lot more, you know, beautiful women pushed in society that that are are athletes that are coming out of all sorts of different sports mm-hmm. and that's essentially the the push of strong and athletic mm-hmm. is is the beautiful image 
but there's a catch to that, that if women get too strong, mm. then they no longer look, you know, quote unquote, ladylike. Mm. Yeah, because then they're mannish. Then they're mannish. Yeah, that's so interesting, right? Because like, and, and what is that line? Exactly. Like, it's this ever-changing thing that we don't know. And this is why anytime that we try to compare ourselves or try to hit some sort of societal norm that's outside of ourselves, we're always going to fall short. Right. Because, I mean, you even just said, because then they start looking mannish because then there's this male idea mm-hmm. of big and strong. Yeah. So women need to look strong. That's now the, like, the push is women should be strong. But if you get too strong, then you're going to start looking like a man. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, okay, well, this is really impossible at this point right but then this is kind of where I thought about bringing this conversation up you know to you is that you are not the big strong man that is on like the brawny lumberjack you know paper towel I will bench press you right now Uh, I would love to see (laughs) you do that but like you know you're a runner and so this is why yes I would say that your body type kind of fits that traditional um, runner look, right? If we want to, if we want to just go into that stereotype, which, you know, the whole point of this episode, I hope you understand is to try to break down these stereotypes, right. And to show how they're not helpful, but sometimes just in talking about it, it, it is, you know, kind of useful to describe. Yeah. Right? Let's, let's put a line right here that both of us are completely on board with. If you run, you are a runner. Totally. To, so to say that I fit the runner look right. is ludicrous because neither one of us actually believe that there is a runner body there's like that oh you have a runner body or you don't have a runner body if you run you are a runner a runner bodies come in all shapes sizes colors genders ages like there are no there's not one defining feature right but when you look at elite runners when you look at elite professional runners a lot of them typically have the same t- body type. Once right? you start getting over a certain distance. Right, right. So that's that's also a very good point, right? Like professional runners that are like 100 meter runners are a lot different than marathon runners. <laughs> very, very much yeah. so. Like there's, there's a break and it's somewhere around the half mile where mm-hmm. runners no longer look long and lanky. Like once you get like the half miler guys are pretty... Yeah you know, pretty big and muscular. And the milers get, are like right there in between. Yeah. And you've get, you've had some elite milers that have more of that slender build and mm-hmm. you've had some elite milers that have some really muscular thighs. Yeah. But the thing is that a lot of the milers, you put them all on the line and you're like, oh, that one looks bigger and stronger. That one looks like taller and leaner. Mm-hmm. And then you stand them next to like, I don't know, somebody in the stands, like someone of normal average build Mm -hmm. and they all look super skinny. Yeah. It's just relative to each other. Sometimes the milers look a little bigger and stronger than others. Right. And so I think that this is kind of like a very interesting thing to to start thinking about. Like the messages that we started getting, like when we were growing up, um, how did those messages influence you? You know, like the, the, ideal quote unquote of course ideal body type that was perpetuated in the media at the time when you were growing up did that affect your body image and how did you compare yourself to other people like did that leave a lasting impression in your head well one of the things is like who was the person that you were physically trying to you know start looking like Mm -hmm. and from your side were you trying to look more like 
like the athletes that you may have looked up to and aspired to be like yeah. because you were very athletic growing up. You but played like, all sorts of sports. Quite honestly, like women athletes were not as prevalent in the 90s. Which is a big issue. Yeah. So then... The, they are now. They are now. Yeah. There's a lot of really strong women that, that our girls can look up to. Mm-hmm. But back in the 90s, who were you really looking up to? Yeah. If, like in terms of body image, mm-hmm. you're looking at a lot of, you know, maybe celebrities. Every, yeah. Celebrities. And maybe every four years you'll catch the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like I wasn't a runner or I didn't do any of those real sports in the, that were like in the Olympics. I mean, I did basketball, but I knew that I wasn't a basketball player yeah. per se. Right. Like I wasn't tall. I'm five, three, you know, like that. I didn't compare my body to those athletes right same thing with volleyball those were typically taller um softball i would say like you know i would kind of identify more with that body type but even at the elite level those girls are just a lot bigger than i am yeah and none of those sports were in the olympics on the female side while you were in while you were in that like influential right because the WNBA was just like that was just born i think like in the 90s right like so that was you know the big thing that women were starting to have um a playing field, not equal to men, but starting to, you know, try to get closer. Right. <laughs> right. At least they had a playing field. Yeah. But there was, it wasn't like, well, I mean, if you're super elite, I guess you could maybe have a chance on the guy's team. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember that growing up is there was a couple of girls that played on the baseball team with me as I was going through, through right. Little League. At, at one point, she hit the right age that the girl on our team was the best athlete we had mm-hmm. because she had hit the growth spurt and was taller than all of the guys on the team. Mm-hmm. So she was like the most athletic person that we had on the team because yeah. she was simply bigger than everybody else. Right. And I think that like it's just like a very interesting thing to start thinking about. Like going back to running, how does that relate to runners, right? The gender stereotype with runners, like going back to you, you know, and your ideas about yourself. Like there's a gender stereotype or there's this cultural, I should say, stereotype that men should be big and strong. But as a runner, that's not what you're seeing at your level, right? Like at the level you were trying to compete, the the faster guys were typically the smaller and more slender guys. Right. I mean, when I got into running, and I think I was really lucky that I got into running when I did because of the natural build of my body. Like, I'm naturally more slender. So... I played sports when I was through middle school. I played football and basketball. I played baseball. I was not very good at any of them. Um, (laughs) But I played football because there were flags on my hips. Like, I didn't play tackle football. I would have been wrecked out there. And so when we got to high school, like I already knew I was going over, going to flip over and I was going to start running cross country and track. I still had this vision that I was going to be a baseball player, even though I was terrible at it and was so scared of being hit by the ball. Yeah, you didn't even like it. No, I didn't like it and I wasn't good at it. And I, I still thought somehow I was going to play it in high school. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> um, but my sister ran cross country. And so it made sense that once I hit high school, I was going to stop playing football because they were going to put pads on me and let people tackle me. And I was going to flip over and start running cross country. And I looked so much more like those people that were also on the team with me. Would you say that that kind of attracted you to the sport as well? Was like that there were other people that looked similar to you? Yes. So before I even hit high school, mm-hmm. I know as, as I was making this thing and thinking about this a lot, because we had this discussion the other night over dinner, it was the two of us, the kids were out and it, we just had this conversation before we hit the record button of that got me going. 
who was one of the early people that I was trying to like connect with about like, what can I physically do? Who can I physically look like? Because yeah. I liked sports. I liked being good at sports and I hadn't found one that I was really great at. Mm -hmm. I was solid enough at flag football, but where's flag football going to get you as a guy? It's not yeah. really progressing very much. But there was a guy who was, um, he was dating one of my sister's friends. Okay. So he was a senior when I was in eighth grade. So we never actually got to be on the cross country team together. Mm -hmm. Um, but I knew who he was and the summer before I started as like a graduate, he would come back and like just hang out at practice. He would go do his own run. He was off, uh, he was going to go run for Duke. And I mean, he was like a 15 flat minute 5k runner mm -hmm. and he was smaller than I was. I was like, okay, well, if he can be that good mm -hmm. and he's, I mean, he's shorter than I am and he's lighter than I am. Clearly that's the look that I need to go for. That's how I'm going to be as good as I possibly can. Hmm. That's so interesting. And I, I think that like thinking back on me and my body image in high school, I just automatically took cross country off the table, <laughs> right? Like I don't look like a runner. I don't, I don't look like the rest of those people over there. So that's clearly not my sport. And I mean, like, obviously I grew up and I was doing, um, sports in middle school that led me and I just basically continued the same sports in high school. But like, even when there was cross country at our middle school, it was just a two mile yep. and we ran laps of the campus. I remember. And, um, I think I did it once. I think I tried to do it once and I just thought it was the worst thing ever. <laughs> right. And then again, like you start to look at the people that were better at running and they typically had a different body type than I thought that I had. So that is interesting of how like, you know, our own body image could possibly dictate like what we even decided to do, you know, in the sports world. Right. right? Like as we were children or teenagers or yeah you had you had an image in your head and then you found other people that were good at things and you're like okay I look somewhat similar to that person maybe I can aspire to look more like that person and I will be good at what they do yeah I think that even carries over to real life runners right there's totally. a lot of runners that we've talked to you know throughout the years now coaching and they're like, well, I've been running for years. I've done 15 half marathons and I still don't think I'm a runner. And it's like, why would you not think that you're a runner? And so many times it's because of comparison, right? They're comparing their body to someone else. They're comparing their time to someone else. They're like, well, I just, I just run walk. I don't actually run the whole time. So yeah. I'm not really a runner like that. You're still a runner, still you know, runner. you know, still a runner. But I think it's just so interesting how we develop our identity. And so much of that is based in comparison. It's, it's incredibly based in comparison. Yeah. I mean, I, Literally, I lucked out that I happened to have met this guy before I even got into high school mm -hmm. that kind of took me on the running path that I've been on and, and all of the positives and negatives that came with that. Like part of that was like, okay, well, as I start hitting growth spurts in, in high school, because I remember at the time when I entered high school, I was really small. Mm -hmm. And then my freshman year, I grew like five or six inches and I was like, oh, I'm way taller than Tom now. I don't know if I'm ever going to be that good. Oh, interesting. Because he was like, I think he headed off to college at like 5'2". Mm -hmm. So like he was this really small guy that I'm like, okay, I can be like that. I could look just like that and I can be that fast. Mm -hmm. So then I got this growth spurt and I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? Now who do I compare myself to? And, and I had plenty of other teammates around that yeah. had a, a different look. And I'm like, hey, well now I guess I'm going to try and look like that person who's now a senior and see how this will work for me. Hmm. So that's interesting. So like I would say then there is like 
there is definitely then gender stereotype and body image types of issues in men as well, like men runners. Oh, very much. Mm -hmm. I don't think that you hear about them as often as you do on the women's side. Right, because I think it's, and especially because it's being publicized a lot more now with women. Like there are, you're, you're seeing it a lot in the media, right? That there are women runners that are coming out, speaking out against their coaches, right? There are- Incredible stories. You know, elite coaches that are being fired because of the way that they treat their female athletes, right? Where there's a lot more awareness over the signs of overtraining and underfueling. Like there is um, something called Red S, R-E-D hyphen S, which used to be called the female triad, which is basically a sign that you're overtraining um, and underfueling. And, and one of the main signs is loss of menstrual cycle, right? But obviously men don't have a menstrual cycle, right? So there's all, I feel like there's a lot of information out there about women and there's been a lot of focus on that which is all such a good thing like I think that it's so important that we have this awareness I just was curious what it was like on the men's side too well so I grew up in and hit college at the time that you know being the smallest runner you could especially on the women's side was a really big push and there were so many colleges that like eating disorders weren't really like, it wasn't part of the coaching philosophy, but coaches just sort of overlooked it. And like the older runners on the team would essentially kind of help the younger runners on the team figure out how to get into the flow. Indoctrinate them essentially. Essentially. And I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of stories and they're, they're not healthy. None of them are healthy. Like the overall that we've had in the last decade, decade plus, maybe like 15 ish years, of some colleges losing their entire coaching staff because like there were very often male coaches that kind of in so many words suggested to their female athletes at your weight there's no way that you'll be competitive mm-hmm. well, that's not a good coaching philosophy no, definitely like that's not. just not going to work and well it wasn't necessarily said on the male side as a guy, if you're looking around, you're going to physically compare yourself to the people around you. And you have to have a lot of security in yourself to be like, it's okay if I have a little more muscle on me. It's okay if my thighs are a little bit bigger. It's okay if when I run, my thighs actually touch each other. Like I've heard the, these conversations from people that, that dealt with disordered eating at, on the male side mm-hmm. of like, I wanted to make sure that I could compete with that guy and that guy looked skinnier than me. So therefore the answer was I had to lose weight. Right. So they just automatically like associated being skinnier with better times. Well, because it's one of the easiest things to see about another person. Mm. It's a lot easier. You don't see them getting more sleep than you. You don't see their (laughs) their entire training log of all of the different workouts and all the mileages and what the plan was. You can physically see that person looks skinnier than I am. That's the easiest thing that I can directly attack. I'm not eating lunch today. Yeah. And if that if that person's skinnier, that means that they're eating less. So that means I need to eat less so that I can be skinnier too. Yeah. And that just leads to so many problems. Like yes, there is the red S, which is essentially like like we said, loss of period. It leads to you know stress fractures and bone issues and all sorts of hormonal problems. Um, but the same thing, similar things show up in males. Obviously, not the menstrual cycle, but injury, right? Injury is a huge one. Like the reason that so many college runners get injured, especially when they're, they're going from, you know, high school to college is that they just, they ramp up their training, but they're also 
dealing with these new stereotypes, dealing with these new expectations on them. They're not eating. Maybe they're trying to, um, you know, cut weight, try to get skinnier, and then they're not fueling their body. They're not refueling their body, and their body just continues to break down. Right. I mean, especially when you hit, like, collegiate athletes, suddenly you're going from a kid who probably didn't have to worry about their own food when they were in high school. Mm. Like, mom and dad were probably cooking, or mom and dad were at least providing dinner. Suddenly they're on their own. They're in charge of what they're putting into their body. So they have a lot more control of how much and when it's happening. Mm -hmm. And as an 18, 19-year-old, you're not always making the healthiest choices regardless of what your your training is. <laughs> like you're not making the healthiest choices about what's going into your body at all times. And then, you know, you talk about the the physical issue of the female triad. Well, look, if one of the Simpson symptoms is a missed period, I'm this is clearly not something that could ever be a problem for me. Mm. So, we're just going to skip over the whole fact of, you know, stress fractures and constant muscle pain and fatigue all the time. And we're just going to tell ourselves that that's just what runners what happens to runners. Runners runners get sore, that's just a pain that you're supposed to experience mm-hmm. and the female triad is something for female athletes, that's not something that male athletes would ever have to worry about. Because you're big and strong. Well, because it's called the female triad. Right, so but, but also because you're big and strong. Also so, I'm big and strong. So clearly it doesn't affect you the same way right. as the frail little women right. that, which is, that are experiencing these problems. Which is why there was that huge push to change it and stop, stop calling it the female triad, which mm-hmm. was just ridiculous, and call it red S. I mean, it wasn't ridiculous, but it, you needed something that was going to apply to both genders. You needed something that males could not just dismiss as... I can't possibly have that because yeah. it's called the female triad. Yeah, and I think that that's just so interesting, right? To like think about the mindset behind all of this. Like, you know, when you sit when you think to yourself like lighter is better, like it would like I'm going to be faster if I'm leaner and, you know, that can get into this whole idea of racing weight here. Um but before we jump into that, it's it's just this whole thing of like you know, I should not fuel myself because I should lose weight because if I lose weight, then I'll race better because I won't have as much weight on me to run, right? Like I can run faster if I don't, if I'm not carrying as much weight. Like yeah. that is an idea out there. It's a very, like it's a logical idea. Like there's some solid physics behind that. It's, it takes less energy to move a lighter mass. Mm-hmm. So if I don't weigh as much, it's not going to be as difficult to run as fast. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that you get too light that there's no longer any fuel to move the mass at all mm-hmm. like there's a combination of yes you need to be a little bit lighter maybe you'll get a little bit faster but if you're not putting any fuel into the engine it doesn't matter how light you are you can't move period especially if you get to the point of perpetual day in and day out under fueling mm-hmm. now you're just setting up to injury and now you're definitely not moving anytime soon exactly and so that brings us to this idea of racing weight right like the ideal racing weight and people think that they need to get down to a certain number like it's not usually up to right it's Minus. usually down to a certain mm-hmm. number and um there's been books written about racing racing weight, weight. right and how you should be lighter and and elite athletes you know they have in their head their racing weight is a certain number and then when they're not racing or not training that hard their weight tends to be like 10 pounds heavier you know for some of them and and they talk about that 
So I just think it's important for us to just kind of start to break this idea down a little bit too and, and understand that there is not an ideal racing point for weight for everyone. Like it's not a fixed point that we should all be kind of shooting for. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly not like, oh, you're, there's there's not a chart. Right. <laughs> there's definitely there's, not the chart that you... There's no chart. There's not a chart that, oh, you, you are a female and you are exactly this tall, so this is your ideal racing weight. Mm-hmm. Like that's ludicrous. It differs from person to person. It differs from two people of the exact same gender and the same height. Two different racing weights could mm-hmm. be the most ideal for that person. Right. You've got to make sure that you are taking care of yourself. You know, this is the it goes back to the idea that we've done on like nutrition of what you eat during a marathon of making sure that you're getting your appropriate goos and gels during the race is completely inconsequential if you've eaten crap for the last six months. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same idea of like, oh, well, I have to make sure that I lose those last two pounds before my race so that I can actually hit the race as fast as possible. No, that's serving no benefit to you. Like if you're running a marathon, it might actually be more beneficial for you to put on two pounds before your race, right? Like that's the whole concept of carbo loading. Yeah, which is why, I mean, it's one of the recommendations of if you really go all in on carbo loading before a marathon, you never check the scale. And if Mm -hmm. you do, you check the scale to make sure over those last two days that you just magically gained four pounds Mm -hmm. because it's all water weight. And then you're over, you're super hydrated for the race also. Like Mm -hmm. everything wins on that thing. Right. And so if we think about this idea of like, you know, needing to be a certain weight, like it's also important to recognize that it doesn't even work the same. Like clearly there's not an ideal racing weight that everyone should hit, right? There's no chart like we, like Kevin said, but even you as an athlete, as a person, it doesn't even work for you over different races or even different phases of your life, right? Like your ideal racing weight at 25 might be much different than it is at 35 or 40 after you've had children and that, you know, there's other things going on in your life. Yeah. My ideal racing weight in high school and my ideal racing weight now are very different. I mean, the amount of, it's not like I'm, we've covered, I'm not a big giant burly man, but in high school, I still had way higher levels of testosterone just flowing through me because I was like a 16, 17, right? Exactly. Like the testosterone levels are through the roof. So I could overdo it and recover so much faster than I can right now. Mm. So I could literally race underweight what I would probably consider in terms of like health wise, I probably should have had more fuel. My body was just able to recover from it faster than normal because my hormones were through the roof because I was a teenage boy. That's interesting. That's, that's my guess. Hmm. I kind of just put it out there and get your, yeah. your take on that one. That's, that's interesting. Like I, I would have to think about that more, but I mean, for sure your hormones definitely play a role, um, in the way that you recover. And obviously that hormones play a huge role in red S that's one of the, you know, it's, it's a hormonal disorder essentially. Yes. Your hormones you know? go haywire. So that, that is very, uh, hmm, we'll have to look into that more, but like going back to this, like, you know, physical image and especially this societal f- physical image that we think that we should have. So I'm, I'm hoping that by this point, you've started to kind of question your own thoughts and beliefs about yourself, right. And about your body and about what you think you should look like, because I think that this is important to also apply back to our running, right? If you are running so that you will have a certain body image, you're totally doing it backwards. Okay. (laughs) Like you need to accept and love your body first. Like I always 
like to say, you know, run because you love your body and you want to see what you're capable of, not because you hate it and you want to change it. And I think that it's important for us to look at how this also applies to the physical image that you are trying to achieve in your own head, right? And does that actually fit with your running goals? So like we said before, a lot of people might get into running originally to lose weight. So the goal is, okay, I'm going to start running so that I can lose 10 pounds or 20 pounds or 50 pounds, whatever it might be. Then some people say, well, if I'm going to start running, I need a goal. So then I should really just train for a marathon because I've heard that that's a really good way to lose weight because if I'm running 26 miles, I'm definitely going to be losing weight in that process. Right. Unfortunately, training for a marathon and losing weight are not really going hand in hand well you know and you can right like if if you are significantly overweight over a hundred pounds or more overweight training and running a marathon is probably going to help you lose weight right but if your goal is to see how well you can run a marathon you need to have a lot less focus on what a number on a scale is and you need to make sure that you're fueling appropriately before and after your runs Mm -hmm. that you're getting in really good sources of fuel and food and, and on a regular basis because of the physical training that you're putting your body through. Yeah, so that you don't get injured. Right, exactly, because you're not crossing the finish line if you're hurt. And under-fueling is, I mean, it's essentially how you would go about losing weight is under-fueling. You need a calorie deficit. Exactly. Right, like if you're going to lose weight, you need a calorie deficit. So you either are eating less or you're training more so that you have a calorie deficit. So if you are deciding to run a marathon, that means that you are not, if you are losing weight during marathon training, it basically means that you are not refueling your body to the same level because you are in a calorie deficit. That's how weight loss works, right? Right. But when when that happens, like while you're training for a marathon, depending on how big that calorie deficit is, that can very quickly lead to injury. Right, because you're not just you're not refueling your body so you're not able to build back muscle mm-hmm. and you're certainly not able to build it back stronger than it was. Yeah. You're in this constant breakdown and not fully build back. Break down and then not fully build back and eventually you just break down on a much larger scale. Exactly. So we always go back to what is the priority here? You know, if you want to lose weight, then maybe you should lose weight first and then train for a marathon. If the priority is the marathon, then fuel your body appropriately so that you can run that marathon strong so that you can feel good so that your body can build you know strength during your training process and you're not feeling just constantly broken down the entire time and then lose weight afterwards right which one is more important to you can they happen simultaneously yes they can is it going to be slower yes it is if you do it properly right you shouldn't have a thousand calorie deficit per day while you're training for a marathon you are going to break down and get injured if you have a 100 calorie deficit per day that would probably be okay, right? Like, I'm, I, and I'm not going. Please don't take these as exact numbers. I'm just kind no. of, please, uh, yeah, I'm just kind of pulling numbers out of the air, right? But if you have a small 
calorie deficit and then you slowly lose weight over the course of marathon training over months and months and months that's a different story than trying to go for these like drastic things where you're like oh sweet I'm gonna go out and do a long run of 15 miles so that I can burn 1500 calories and then I'm only going to refuel myself with 500 calories right yes a long run followed by a day of fasting is not your setup to long-term success it's not like you're going to feel crappy in the process and you are probably going to get sick or injured or have other issues. And I mean, this kind of goes to the idea of, you know, that the race time at the end is not necessarily the celebration. Mm -hmm. Like it's, if you miss the time on the clock, does that mean that you didn't actually achieve your running goal? Mm -hmm. You know, we like to say that the race is the time is the icing on the cake, that all of the training that you put in, that's what made you the person that you are. So if you're not even sure what the goal is of like, is it weight loss? Is it, is it getting as fast as I can? If there's too many goals, you're never really going to accurately hit any of them, especially on, on goals of weight loss and the time on the clock, because both of those, after you cross the finish line, you're like, well, I mean, I could be three pounds lighter. I could be a couple seconds faster. Mm -hmm. They're the, they're the goals that will constantly keep moving a few steps further away from you. Right. And so it's just, again, always go back to your priorities, like pick one goal, you know, don't pick like, can you have multiple? Sure. But have one as the clear priority and then the other ones can kind of come along for the ride like right like if you if the priority is the marathon then train for the marathon and fuel your body well for the marathon and if you lose a little bit of weight in the process see that as a bonus but don't try to build in ridiculous calorie deficits so that you can like lose all of this weight in the process of training for the marathon also right like think of like building your body stronger right because if you if you train for a marathon you will be building muscles and, and all the, you know, strength in your bones and your connective tissues and all these good things. But you also have to think about the fact that your body is also training itself to store more glycogen, right? You have to store more carbohydrates and water and glycogen in order to run that long of a distance. So you're automatically going to be putting yourself at... Um, kind of a disadvantage for weight loss, right? Because your body needs to hold on to more glycogen so that you can train in order to run 26 miles. Right. So weight loss and marathon training don't really go hand in hand because of the long run. Mm -hmm. Like the long run is one of the biggest issues to it is you, every time you head on a long run, you put your body in this massive calorie deficit and it trains your body that it needs to hold on to every calorie that it possibly can. Right. And that's the opposite of what you would need your body to think when you're trying to lose weight. So, and like, that's a reason that refueling after those long runs are so important. It's also, so vitally important. Right. So because you're burning all of these, all of this energy. And if you, don't replace it. Like Kevin just said, your body just is like, oh shoot, like I better get more efficient at this. I better start burning less calories when I'm out on the run because I'm not getting that back. Like, and I, sh I should store as much as I can in the other times that I'm eating so that I can be prepared that I can have some sort of storage, you know, for the next time I do this. Right. It's also just going to generally slow down your overall metabolism. Like your resting metabolic rate is now going to start decreasing because if, if you're saying, okay, Hey body, I would like you to go out and run 10 miles, but I'm also not going to fuel you. Your body's going to find calories from somewhere. So mm -hmm. it's going to run all of its other, just like normal body processes even more efficiently. So it can pull calories from something. Mm -hmm. So like 
just like your the calories used to think all day long are going to start diminishing, yeah. which then leads to literally foggy thinking because mm-hmm. you're not putting food into your body. Yeah, exactly. So there are so many other consequences of not fueling your body appropriately. And if you want more information, you can check out our bonus episode earlier this week. We talked to registered dietitian Christy Bauman in episode 190, and we talked all about fueling for runners and listening to our bodies and some of the signs and symptoms of underfueling. You know, so if you are someone that thinks a lot about weight and weight loss with your running, you probably are at a higher risk for underfueling yourself. So I really would suggest obviously listening to this episode, which you already are, and then going back and listening to our last bonus episode as well. Yeah, that's a, that a good episode. Um, I mean, one of the things is if you really just find yourself thinking about food mm-hmm. all the time, yeah. that's probably a sign that you're thinking about food too much. Yeah. And, and that's a sign that maybe you're a little too focused on the weight aspect of this. Right. So another thing we want you to consider when you're thinking about um, improving and training and those kinds of things is like consistency is really the biggest key to improvement. So if you are getting injured all the time because you're under fueling, that's going to eliminate your consistency. So this idea that, well, if I just weighed less, I would be faster or I'd be able to run longer. And so then you under fuel and you don't give your body what it needs so that you can lose weight. Then what happens when you're under fueling is that you get injured or you get sick and then you're not as consistent when you're running there goes your faster times, yeah. which was the goal in the first place. Which was the goal in the first place. I mean, so much of this comes down to a comparison and we're, we're finding other people and we're like, man, if I just, if I was skinnier like that person, if I looked more like that person, then I could be a little bit faster, then I would be a real runner. And so much of this is, look, you're all runners. You've listened, if you're still listening now, we're over 50 minutes into a running podcast. You're clearly a runner, mm-hmm. okay? Like, let's stop this question. If you want to decide how much you look like a runner, you know, quote unquote, have the runner look, head to a marathon. Like hang out at the finish line of a marathon and watch everybody cross that finish line. The size and shapes of the people crossing the finish line who just ran a marathon, no one's questioning whether they are a runner or not. Like you are a runner regardless of what that shape is that you're crossing the finish line. Yeah, or even just a local 5K. Yeah. You know, like there's all shapes, all sizes. And so we want you to take away from this episode, you know, to love your body like no matter what it looks like no matter what the time is on the clock no matter what you are capable of doing or not capable of doing right now it doesn't mean that you're not capable of doing that forever like if it's something that you want to work towards then start doing it right but you it needs to start from a place of loving your body and accepting your body for what it is and you can do that and still want to change it you can still try to get better like I have completely transformed the way that I look at my body and a lot of that was because I became a mom you know I knew that I had a negative body image before and when I had two girls I knew that they were going to watch the way that I talked about my body or looked at myself in the mirror or you know if I were looking in the mirror and I kind of like squeezed or pinched you know that little pocket of fat that's my love handles there or like my belly here or um you know that lovely little piece of back fat that we all have that you know it's just I, I didn't want them to see that right because I could tell them all I wanted that they should love their bodies and that their bodies are perfect the way that they are but if I was constantly 
talking about dieting or talking about things about my body that I wanted to change, that's really the message that they're going to receive. So that's what led me to really start to look in the mirror every day and just love and appreciate my body for what it was. And it, it was a journey, you know, it, it, it still is, right? It's, it's still a journey. Like we still have these ideas that like to kind of creep up every now and then because they're so ingrained in us from such a young age. So allow that thought, just start to recognize it, start to see it for what it is. And that is a lie. It's something that's trying to keep you down and you can decide to start to think something else about yourself. Right. And you can love the way that you look right now and still strive to change the way that you look. You can love the runner that you are and still strive to run longer or Mm -hmm. faster. Like you can love everything about your current situation and still try to move to a different situation that you may like, you, you could call it a better situation, but you can simply change the situation and still love where you are. It doesn't make that situation better. It's just that's going to be the new situation I'm going to move towards. Right. You have to accept that identity, and then you'll start moving towards that situation. But you still have to accept where you are to begin with and be happy and joyful with where you currently are. Yeah, because you're perfect just as you are, and you are enough right where you are. You're exactly where you're supposed to be and we know that because that's where you are right now right that's the proof that you are exactly where you are supposed to be because if you weren't supposed to be there then you wouldn't be you would be somewhere else so understand that this is all part of your journey you are perfect right where you are right now and you can also set goals to make yourself better, like we're going to put that in quotes also, yep. right? Um, you can set goals to, to change because I, I mean, I believe for me, it's, I'm always on a constant journey of personal growth. How can I grow as a person? Right. And, and that's what running helps me to do. It's like, okay, well, could I run faster? Like, and, and so by setting that goal, it's going to force me to get uncomfortable and that allows me to grow in the process. Yeah, it's the glory of running as a one giant massive experiment of, okay, I ran this race, now let's try a different training, let's try a different approach to it, a different fueling, whatever it is, accept where you are, set a new goal, strive for that goal, but it starts with the acceptance and complete happiness with your current situation. Yep, absolutely. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this conversation. I think it went pretty well. I think we hit a lot of really good stuff. Um, And we want you to just kind of start to come away from this and just start to question all the things that you thought about yourself or all the identities that you thought were just truths and start to question those things and and actually ask and and figure out what do you actually want to think about yourself and then start practicing that thought day after day after day so as always guys thank you so much for joining us this has been super fun and we hope you enjoyed it this has been the real life runners podcast episode number 191 now get out there and run your life hey If you enjoy listening to this podcast, you have to come check out the Real Life Runners training team. It's our monthly coaching program where we take all of this material, we apply it, and we take it to the next level. We teach you how to train your mind, body, and skills for true and lasting success in your running and your life. We offer customized training plans, live coaching calls, and one-on-one coaching, along with our proven system to help you transform into the runner you want to be and achieve your goals. 
Come join our team over at realliferunners.com forward slash team and start to truly run your life. We'll see you there.